Section 77 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombal. Suicide, Part 9, A Hungarian Nobleman's Stratagem, The Runk Case in Philadelphia, Part 1. Several years ago, a nobleman, well-known in sporting circles as a horseman and hunter, named Baron Bella Olnyi, triumphed over a crowd of rivals and bore home as his bride the rich and beautiful Baroness Irma P. Yi. Baron Bella was at that time a wealthy landed proprietor and was able to indulge to the full all his inclinations and whims. His married life was a happy one. Years followed one after the other, but they were not all alike. The beautiful Baroness, as time wore on, presented her spouse with six of the dearest little barons and baronesses that ever were seen, and Baron Bella, began to dabble in speculations. It was the old, old story that has been repeated a thousand times. Toward the end of 1874, the Baron's vast possessions, which were worth nearly two millions, had been sold, and the family mansion in Pest was mortgaged to its last brick. Of all this, the fair Baroness was kept in complete ignorance, and the family establishment was maintained in its usual style. When the baron realized that he was completely ruined and that all that was left was his wife's property, which could not be touched, he formed a singular resolution. He got his life insured in five different companies for 100,000 gulden in each, the terms being that this amount should be paid over to his family in case he should die within a year. None of the insurance companies objected to pocketing the premium of 2,000 florins from a man just 45 years of age, in the full vigor of life and in exuberant health. The day, however, Baron Bella had the last policy in his pocket, he entered upon an entirely different course of life. He had been a man who never missed a race or a hunt, who went to the club every day, and regularly took his drive or ride on horseback in the park. Now he was to be seen nowhere in company, not even by his dearest friends, nor did he remain at home in the bosom of his family. He left his house every morning early and only returned in time for dinner. After dinner he disappeared again and remained absent often until midnight. During all this time nobody knew where he kept himself secluded. The change in his external appearance was not less remarkable. He had previously been getting rather stout. He now began to lose flesh. His cheeks, which had been florid, changed to an unhealthy paleness. His eyes lost their brightness and were surrounded with heavy circles of blue. His face became haggard, and his strong manly voice became cracked and feeble. When these symptoms of dangerous disease multiplied in such a striking manner, 
The friends that occasionally visited him and his wife endeavored to persuade him to take medical advice and to explain his mysterious absences. His answer was a positive refusal. Finally, in October, the physical constitution, once so strong, could no longer withstand the agency so potent for evil which was undermining it, and Baron Bella was compelled to take to his bed. Physicians were called in. They shook their heads ominously and declared that it was a case of galloping consumption, that the disease had already reached a stage in which all human aid was in vain. Hardly fourteen days later, the sufferings of the poor baron were in fact terminated by death. After his death, a will was found by which he bequeathed to his wife his life insurance policies and acquainted her with the fact of the loss of his entire fortune. No other course was open for the baroness except to prefer her claims for the half million due on the policies through her solicitor. The solicitor, however, immediately ran against difficulties. It was thought to be incredible that a man who had been examined only ten months before by five physicians and pronounced in good health could have died of the disease mentioned. The five companies came to the conclusion that a plan of slow suicide had been deliberately adopted, and they all refused payment of the claims. The companies interested went further and undertook to penetrate the mystery of the daily absences of the baron, of which they had previously got wind. After long and extensive researches, they finally ascertained that early in January, the baron had hired a small apartment in a dirty, narrow street in a remote quarter of the city, and twice each day remained in it for a considerable time. The neighbors never saw him hold any intercourse with anyone. The rent of the apartment had been paid up to the end of December, and after the baron's death it had been locked up, to clear up the hidden mystery within that room, it was necessary to invoke the arm of the law. Upon proper evidence, a warrant was issued. The fatal door was opened by a locksmith, and in breathless anxiety, the room was entered. A comfortable sofa, a table, two chairs, and two chests constituted the entire furniture. Great was the amazement when the two chests were opened. The first contained a well-worn dressing gown, a pair of loose Turkish trousers, a fez, and about ten or twelve long tobacco pipes. The second chest was divided into square compartments, and there were left in it about two hundred foreign cigars, of the government brand, costing two kreutzers each, and about half a pound of what is known in the trade as common smoking tobacco. From the wrappers found in the lower compartment, it appeared that the baron had smoked up about 3,500 of these two Kreutzer cigars and about a hundredweight of the common trade tobacco. At the request of the representatives of the insurance companies, a proper record was made of the facts discovered, and thereupon the companies, under the circumstances, justified their refusal to pay the amount insured by referring to the provision in the policies, by virtue of which the contract was to become null and void in the event of suicide. The counsel for the Baroness urged in reply 
that smoking 10 or 15 two Kreutzer cigars a day could hardly be denominated an attempt at suicide. Chemical and medical investigations were instituted by both parties, and the managers of the Royal Tobacco Factory were called upon for an opinion. The cause of his death was believed to have been due to saturation with nicotine, taken into his system in poisonous quantities through the process of smoking. The Runk case in Philadelphia. The suit of A. Howard Ritter, executor of the estate of William M. Runk, deceased against the Mutual Life Insurance Company of New York in the United States Circuit Court, Philadelphia, before Judge Butler at the April term, 1895, attracted widespread attention because of the social and business prominence of a man who committed suicide, while clearly and admittedly sane, in order to defraud life insurance companies out of a large amount of money. The main points in the case, as detailed in the insurance register, are as follows. William M. Runk was a well-known merchant of Philadelphia, he had been known for a number of years as a large insurer. He had had insurance on his life for from five to ten years to an amount approximating $300,000. The testimony at the trial showed his annual income to be about $8,500. In the winter of 1891 and 1892, he placed $200,000 additional on his life. At this time, he stood high in business, social and religious circles, yet it was conclusively proved on the trial that he had been an embezzler for six or eight years prior to his death, that he had been using for his private purposes trust funds in his possession, had, by his own confession, been defrauding his firm for at least two years, and was completely overwhelmed with debt. On the audit of the executor's account in the orphan's court, some $210,000 of claims were proven against his estate. It was due to one creditor, William Waitman, $20,000, that was secured by $30,000 of insurance. Another creditor, Mrs. Barcroft, the aunt of Mr. Runk, who did not prove her claim against the estate, collected $135,000 out of insurance which had been assigned to her as collateral. Against these debts, the executor had in his hands $152,000, of which $148,000 was derived from insurance, representing the face value of policies to the amount of $170,000. It was admitted by Mr. Ritter, the executor, on the witness stand, that the estate consisted almost wholly of insurance, that there was little or no equity in the real estate of the decedent, and that the insurance which was in litigation almost corresponded in amount with the unpaid debts. The family of Mr. Runk had therefore practically no interest in the litigation, which was in fact between the creditors on the one hand and the companies on the other. The preparations which Mr. Runk made for self-destruction were startling. He left his store about two o'clock on the day of his death, 
after having taken care that very morning to send his check by messenger and to pay an insurance premium then due. He notified his confidential messenger, Mr. William M. Nice, to be at his country house that evening and indicated by what train he should come, telling him he would have something then for him to attend to. He went to his home, told his family that he had writing to do that afternoon, spent the afternoon in writing, and after supper with his family, went out to his stable and shot himself. He had written six letters, four of which were placed in evidence at the trial. One of these was to the messenger he referred to, and asking him to see that he had a quiet funeral and not to talk to anybody. Another was to Mrs. Barcroft, his largest creditor, the one who held life insurance collateral, asking pardon for the disgrace that he was bringing upon her, she being a relative, and saying that it was the only way in which he could pay his indebtedness to her. He admitted also that his present condition was due to speculation. The third letter was to Mr. J.G. Darlington, his partner, in which he told him of the misuse of the firm funds and said that he deserved all the punishment he would get, but that he wished his debts paid and only the sacrifice of his life would do it. He named his executor and stated that he had left instructions that the firm defalcation should be paid out of the first monies received from the insurance. The fourth letter was to his executor and gave him explicit and detailed instructions in regard to the settlement of his affairs. Recounted his various debts, shortages, and defalcations, and directed him to pay his firm defalcation out of the first insurance money received. He gave him also a detailed account of his relations with the Protestant Episcopal City Mission, a large charity of which he had been treasurer, and gave him an itemized list of the securities of this charity, with the statement of what had been done with each one. This letter and memorandum occupied four or five full-scap pages, and showed the utmost care and precision in its preparation. It was testified also on the trial that the facts he stated were all substantially correct. There were two other letters, one of which had been destroyed by its receiver, and the other was not produced on the trial. It should be noted also that all of the policies which were disputed were policies issued within the last year of Mr. Runk's life and were all issued upon applications containing the usual sane or insane suicide clause, limited to two years. By some oversight, no copies of the applications were attached to the policies. It was practically admitted that with the whole contract before the court, the plaintiff had no standing whatever. They objected, successfully in the mutual life case, to the admission of the applications and evidence basing their objection on the Pennsylvania Statute of 1881, which requires a copy of the application to be attached to or made a part of the policies. The mutual life case was therefore tried squarely on the policy without any suicide clause, and the question was brought squarely up for decision whether or not suicide by a sane man was not of itself a fraud on the insurer. 
The case of the same plaintiff against the Home Life Insurance Company was placed on trial immediately after that of the mutual life was given to the jury. It occupied the remainder of the day, and just before the adjournment of the court, the plaintiff was called upon to submit his evidence in rebuttal. Surprised at the charge of the court in the case of the mutual life, he asked and was granted the indulgence of the court until his next sitting on the following Monday. The jury rendered a verdict in favor of the mutual life at the opening of the court on the eighth instant. The plaintiff suffered a voluntary non-suit and thus for the present abandoned the claim against the home life. Copies of letters referred to in the foregoing statement. A. H. Ritter, Esquire. My dear friend, in one of the early clauses of my will, I direct all my debts and loans shall be paid. I will try to enumerate the indebtedness in the order to be paid. First, my account with the firm is overdrawn $86,000, which I want to replace with the first insurance amount you receive. Second, I left in the small closet in the safe a list of the amounts I owe to make the P.E. City Mission account good. $20,000 is in notes of $10,000 each, signed by D.R. and Company, and endorsed Mary A. Barcroft. This I owe and please pay. Then several securities have matured, and I owe for them as enumerated. These are also referred to. I have some in loan with Beneficial Saving Fund Society and Pennsylvania Company. Please redeem and restore. Third, I owe Mrs. Barcroft $90,000 and $30,000 in securities for which she holds life insurance policies. Please adjust them. The $10,000 BNP bonds are, I think, at Beneficial SF. The $12,000 N&W bonds are, I think, at Beneficial SF. The $5,000 P&R bonds are, I think, at Beneficial SF. $5,000 P&R, $3,000 Hillbreath Fire and Company, New York, Philadelphia office. C.D. Barney and Company, $2,000, Tucker and Company, Philadelphia. Of course, $126,000 or $128,000 will be arranged with insurance money. Fourth, I have accounts with W.G. Hopper & Company, Philadelphia, R.E. Tucker & Company, Philadelphia, Bickley Lee & Johnson, New York, Philadelphia Office, 426 Library, Hilbreth, Far & Company, New York, Philadelphia Office, C.D. Barney and Company, Charles Minzenheimer, New York, Philadelphia Office, 3rd and Chestnut. I have marked on each account accompanying this where the securities belong that they hold. Fifth, this should be third, so I order it paid. I owe my mother 52 shares PRR Company and 12 shares LVRR Company, Please buy and turn over to her. Sixth, I owe Jenny C. Runk 30 shares PRR Company with Hopper and Company. Please return to her. Seventh, Miss Lena Giles, Care C.S. Buckland, Keyport, New Jersey. 
and $6,000 note of DR and Company. This I owe personally. Please pay. Interest was paid to June 1st. Eighth, I owe Mr. Waitman $20,000. He holds $30,000 insurance, much of it paid up. All submitted for your guidance, W.M. Runk. I owe for July income and August income city mission. Large black book shows also $950 as shown by three checks and drawer of table in office. You will be bank book. I have $2,500 loan on stock there. Look out for two notes there. See back of checkbook. Two 25 shares of FB stock with J.M. Lockwood & Company belongs to D.R. & Company. Then follows a list of the insurances upon his life after which he gives a list of securities and a statement as to where they are deposited, after which Mr. Runk designates, over his own signature, the amounts due to the P.E. City Mission, which aggregated $54,100. This letter was handed to Mr. Ritter by Mr. Darlington about three days after the death of Mr. Runk. The following letter was received by Mr. Joseph D. Darlington. It was given to him by William H. Nice, an employee of Darlington and Runk, on the day after Mr. Runk's death. Dear Joseph, I have grossly deceived you and can only pay my debts by my life. The Girard Bank is overdrawn $26,000, F&M $20,000, N.A. $18,000, Tradesmen's $16,000, and 4th Street, $6,000, makes $86,000. To make these accounts good, you will find checks drawn and not sent in Arthur's hands in compartment in safe, my top corner closet in an envelope. These checks, with balance in each book, have kept the showing farce too good. Howard Ritter is my executor and I have given him instructions to make this $86,000 good for my first insurance payment. The monies I loaned he is to pay, and the memorandum in Farr's small book charged to me. This is a sad ending of a promising life, but I deserve all the punishment I may get, only I feel my debts must be paid. This sacrifice will do it, and only this. I was faithful until two years ago. Forgive me. Don't publish this. William. Tuesday. Don't blame Farr, for he is innocent. The letter received by Mr. Nice was as follows. Landilo. William. Do all you can for Mrs. Runk, and see that I have a quiet funeral. I am driven to this, but I have tried to be a friend to you. Don't talk to anyone. Tuesday, October 6th, 1892. Yours truly, William M. Runk. Mrs. Mary Barcroft received the following letter. Landilo, St. David's, Pennsylvania. My dear Aunt Mary, forgive me for the disgrace I bring on you, but it is the only way I can pay my indebtedness to you. A. Howard Ritter will attend to all my affairs with you. You have always told me my mind was not strong. I have been led astray, have been infatuated with speculation and lost. I work too hard. 
I am wild, but cannot recover now. Thank you for all you have been to me in every way. Forgive me. Tuesday, October 6th. Affectionately, William. End of section 77.